Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Draft Reading Series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops. Writers and workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the Draft 28.0 is Gifting, Regifting, and the draftees are Joy Carletti, Essay, Lindsay Griffin, Short Story, Karen Levenbook, Novel, and Nick Brasco, Short Story. Welcome to the Draft 28.0. It's our holiday party, our Beacon Award party. I'm pretty excited about this. Our Volunteer Appreciation Recognition Party. And it's also the draft, the 28th draft that we've had, which is awesome. I'm very excited. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't be shy about it. It's, it's good stuff. Um, for those of you new to the draft, the draft highlights the incredible talent that we have in our workshops. Um, our instructors, our super awesome instructors, conscript people who are currently in workshop working on drafts of something, um, and they are conscripted, they are drafted to read here at the draft. And there's a, um, there's a subject matter usually, I think tonight's is um, bad jokes. No, it's gift and re-gift, which might happen with this sweater at some point, so that's really exciting. Um, but first, because it is the holidays, if you will indulge me for a moment, no more jokes, no more really super super bad jokes I, I worked on, I've been working on a poem I'd like to read to you <clears throat> thank you, thank you yes, because I am a poet Okay. It, you, it may sound a little familiar I sort of co-opted a few lines from a pretty well-known poem So, but I, I updated it to make it lighthouse specific "'Twas the night of the draft when all through the house not a creature was stirring not even Erica Krauss and she actually left early, so there you go. The books were stacked in their shelves with care in hopes that drunken lighthouses would soon be there. But nay, they were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of book deals danced in their heads. And Andrea in her scarf and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. This actually makes no sense, so just don't worry about it. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my office to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash and tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the lawn at 15-15 race gave the luster of midday to the place when what to my wondering eyes would appear but a miniature Honda CRV and eight tiny volunteers. With a smart little driver, so lovely and hairless, I knew in a moment it must be Dan Manzanares. Awesome. More rapid than eagles, his courses they came. And he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Carrie, now Maggie, now Ray and Mel. On Darcy, on Ashley, on Megan and Danielle. To the top of the porch, down into the grotto. Set this up, tear that down. Set up that microphone. Oh, 
Grotto microfono. That was a kind of a yeah. It's a slant. It's a slant rhyme. As dry leaves that before wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the courses they flew with tables and cups and plates and cheese cubes too. And then in a twinkling, I heard through the heating vents the prancing and pawing of a gang of poets. As I drew in my head and was turning around up the driveway, Dan Manzanares came with a bound. He was dressed all in black denim from his toes to his ear, and his clothes were already tarnished with wine and beer. A bundle of cupcakes he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His pretty little mouth was drawn up for a kiss. And the stubble of his chin was as manly as that of Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> the stump of a scotch, bo- scotch bottle he held tight in his teeth, and a smoky flavor encircled his head like a wreath. He had a chiseled face and a little round pate that got red when he laughed like Carrie Booth's nose when it gets too late. <laughs> He wasn't, he wasn't chubby or plump, a spry young dude. And I laughed when I saw him in spite of my mood. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head. It's almost over. Soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and cleared all their refuse, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod out to the alley, he rose. Then he sprang into his CRV, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas and happy writing to all, and to all a good night. Thank you. Thank you very much for for surviving that. I appreciate it. All right, the next guy knows no introduction. Needs, needs no introduction, knows no, needs. Give it up for Dan Manzanares. Hello, hello. Um, this was a uh, banner year for the uh, Lighthouse uh, Volunteer Program. Um, I think last year, uh, total volunteers were about 65, and we had um, more than 20. Uh, added to that number, so we were working with about 85, 86 volunteers, um, individuals. Um, just a shade under 1,200 hours the volunteers put in um, as a group, which is fantastic. Um, but before I name uh, the top 10, um, I want to uh, also kind of give a shout-out to um, the top 10 uh, Young Writers Program volunteers, um, because they put in good work, too. Um, and here we go with those names. Uh, Darren Malia, Whitney Gaines, Allison Preston, Jocelyn Green, Tim Albium, Cherie Henry, Lucas Pfizer, Fran Becker, Kara Lopez-Lee, and Aubin Fifley. Let's give it up for them. And I, I, I just asked Andrea, and I think Aubin, Aubin, you said, has been, she was a little kid when she started here, like a 10, 10, 10 years old. She's in college now. She's 19 or something. She's 1920, I think. Um, and she's a member of the program. Um, and then she, she got number one. I mean, she put in 
um, almost 70 hours this year on top of like her busy life. So that's awesome for her. Um, <clears throat> also, this, this year uh, we had a couple um, interns that I wanted to um, mention by name. We had uh, Mike Plamel, who um, – oh, and both of these volunteers came from this awesome um, program called Bringing Back the Arts. It's through uh, the Goodwill Foundation and the, um, the First Lady of Denver. It's like her thing too. So we've gotten a couple uh, awesome interns from them. We had one during LitFest. So if any of you, you know, um, were submitting work to agents, Mike, little Mike, little intern Mike was the guy on the porch kind of directing that. But he also like was selling books and he was fantastic. So Mike Plamel, we thank you. Um, we also had this uh, late summer and through the fall um, Jordan Prock now. Uh, she's a junior at uh, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson, and she put in uh, close to 100 hours uh, for Lighthouse. Um, so here's to Jordan as well. Let's give it up for them. Um, and then to say a little bit about uh, Colorado Gives Day, um, the really cool thing about it is you can create your own mini campaign through an organization. And this year I did that for the volunteers because if you've, if you've been to a lot of Lighthouse events, you see that a lot of us, you know, the, the staff have these name tags on. The volunteers have the same type of name tags, but it says volunteer, right? And a bunch of you guys would say the following. What's your name? Oh, it's volunteer. Oh, hello, volunteer. And I was sick and tired of that shit. I was sick of it. So I created a mini campaign page to raise money so all the volunteers uh, will have personalized name tags. We needed $500. We needed $500. We got $635. So thank you if you donated to that campaign. Um, Top 10. This year was the most competitive year since I've taken over as volunteer coordinator um, the last four years. Um, the, the top 10, there were so many, um, between, you know, eight and nine or, or even one and two, actually, there's only five hours difference. Um, and a lot of these were either like half an hour or two hour difference. And even, uh, between 10 and 11, there was literally just half an hour. (laughs) Um, so it was really cool. Usually we get this like spread of, you know, like number 10 is, you know, it's like 25 hours and one is a hundred or something like that. And this year it's all much clumped together uh, in the 60s and 70s, which is just fantastic stuff. So, um, number 10, Carrie Booth. (laughs) Carrie has made the top 10 the last four years. Let's give him another hand. Number nine, Whitney Gale Cole. Number eight, Danielle Krolowitz. Number seven, Anna Kongs. Number six, Linda Ricketson. Number five, Tessa Cheek. Number four, Ashley Tiedem. Number three, Megan Hickey. Number two, Darcy Fryer. And number one is Maggie Ferguson. Thank you all so much, truly. I love you all. Um, so are we now going into... Yeah. All right. Hold on, let me take off this hat. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, now I want to talk to you about uh, the Beacon Award winner for 2015, 
Benjamin Whitmer. We need a little bit more than that. Beacon Award winner, Benjamin Whitmer. Okay. Thank you. Can I get Sarah Gilbert up here? She's going to help me um, honor Ben real quick. Thank you, Sarah. So, um, we, uh, Sarah and I are going to say a few words, then we're going to do, I think, a little, little, not like a skit or anything funny, like stupid like that, but um, just, just, just something. What we ended up doing is I looked at um, Ben's uh, Facebook page, and what I came to realize is that, like, Ben... Ben, ben only writes, like, a Facebook post, like, every, I don't know, six months. Oh, six minutes. <laughs> um, so, and what, what, he, what he focuses on every once in a while is writing um, his favorite uh, country western song lyrics. So we took, you know, to honor Ben, um, the best of those lyrics that we're going to kind of, you know, do a little performance of. But before we do that, we'll end with that. We'll end with that. Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, um, I have uh, uh, hung out with Ben at the bar. Um, I've done, um, you know, we there, a, a, a few of us guys, this one, uh, we call it the Lost Weekend. We all went to um, a hostel together in honor of our friend who wanted to do this thing to try to – everyone, like, was challenged to write a novella. I've done that with Ben. Um, I've taken many of his classes. I'm going to take his class in January on Noir. I can't say enough about the man. I'm so very happy that he won the Beacon Award. Um, he is an inspiration um, as a writer, as a father, um, as a teacher, and as a mentor. So, um, Ben, I don't even know where you are. He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, he's the guy in the way back by the door. Oh, that's where he is. That's where he is. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, Ben, it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. I'm so happy for you, and thank you for everything that you've done for Lighthouse. And now here is Sarah Gilbert. Um, I'm Sarah Gilbert. I'm a virgin to the Lighthouse stage, so please be kind. I'm, I'm not the Sarah Gilbert, the actress, not to be confused with. Um, I applied for the book project. I'm a first-year book project person. That alone is worth a round of applause. Um, and I applied for the book project in the summer, and um, was this sort of half-baked feminist science fiction idea very in my head and had to work really hard on my application because I hadn't written very much of the story. Just made some notes. And so um, found out I was accepted. I was very thrilled about that. And I'm reading through to understand who my mentor is, and I'm thinking, hmm, I don't think Erica's last name is Benjamin. (laughs) because I was sure my mentor would be a woman but that's okay honorary woman Benjamin Whitmer (laughs) Um, so I started asking around Um, well first I started sort of looking up Ben and I found out that he was sort of into cowboys and handguns and (laughs) my inner Canadian started to sort of cry a little bit (laughs) And then I read some more, and I found out that he loves the San Luis Valley. 
and my wife was born there, so that was a good thing. And then I started asking, well, first I started telling people, I got into the book project. Can you believe that? And they said, um, well, who's your mentor? I said, Benjamin Whitmer. Oh, my God, he's so awesome, as all feminists do. Um, so I was pretty excited to meet him. And um, in all seriousness, it's a great match for me, and I want to personally thank you, which is why I took the opportunity to say some things about Ben tonight. Um, you don't have to scratch too far below the sort of handgun country badass exterior to find a very gentle, very intellectual person who has a fantastic sense of irony, which is one of my favorite things about him. And in terms of a teacher, I'm taking his class for the first time. He's been a mentor to me since the summer, but I'm taking his class for the first time. And, um, fantastic feedback, um, teaching me a lot about workshopping, which I didn't know a lot about before I took some of my classes um, in the book project, and always um, succinct, thoughtful, kind, you know, open-minded, not sure I can think of too many other positive attributes, but well-deserved Beacon Award winner. So thank you personally, Ben, and congratulations. Okay, so remember, we took these lines from Ben's Facebook. Um, <laughs> should I, should are I we go? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah no, let's, let's get close. Country and love, right? We just yeah. met, so yeah. You're Sarah, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care if it rains or freezes, as long as I've got my plastic Jesus. Get your tongue out of my mouth, because I'm kissing you goodbye. (laughs) It's hard to kiss the lips at night that chew your ass out all day. Billy broke my heart at Walgreens, and I cried all the way to Sears. Girl... I want to check you for ticks. (laughs) All the guys who turn me on, turn me down. That's really sad, huh? No, no, yes. Closer, get close. Get so close. They don't make women like you in Waco. I've got an achy breaky heart, and they say I'm too smart, but I'll love smart. you. I'm not too smart, sorry. Start, Freudian start slip. <laughs> <laughs> they say I'm not too smart, but I'll love you like yesterday's gone. I bought the shoes that just walked out on me. <laughs> I met you on Saturday, true. Mm-hmm. Married you on Sunday. Hopefully. Finger crossed. Now it's Tuesday, and I'll use my wedding dress to mop my kitchen floor. (laughs) Burn. (laughs) She thinks my tractor's sexy. I've got that Freightliner fever. (laughs) I thought she was going out jogging, but she's been running around on me. Am 
park by the curbstone of your heart? Mm-hmm. Get off the table, Mabel. The two bucks is for the beer. And now, no, we're there. Yeah, no, no. No, get out of here. No, go. I can talk to her like that. We just met. Without further ado, Benjamin Whitmer. I never said any of that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I gotta see what this is. I've heard from Andrea, it makes a hell of a. A heck of a home defense uh, implement, so I hear. <laughs> so I can retire all those handguns I hear about. Um, so I, now you all have heard everything you need to know about my love life. <laughs> and about half is true. <laughs> you know, when, when Andrea called me up and told me uh, about the Beacon Award in the, uh, what was it, August or September? August? I, uh, I thought she was calling me up to yell at me. <laughs> I'd assumed that somebody reported something I said in class, probably to do with killing cops, <laughs> in, inciting class warfare, <laughs> or uh, something to do with pro-guns. <laughs> I figured, oh, no, I'm in trouble. And when she told me, um, you know, I was incredibly moved, I uh, can't tell you all I'm... I've never been a part of a community to do with writing in any capacity at all. I mean, it's always been something I've done, you know, pretty much on my own. And uh, it's been a kind of crazy few years for me and the kids. And Lighthouse has really meant the world to us. And, uh, you know, there's no no part of the community. I mean, coming in here and the friends I have that I met through the workshops and, and the other instructors have uh, really kept me going. And the... Uh, you know, being a writer, I'm always looking for ways to improve myself as a writer. And I don't find those ways very often. <laughs> I try and read books and stuff like about writing, and they usually suck. <laughs> and then I go online and I look up the top ten lists and all that, you know, top ten ways to write dialogue or whatever that horse stuff is. <laughs> and I'm going to beat y'all. <laughs> whatever that junk is and I uh, <laughs> I don't so I you know it, it doesn't happen but when I'm in the workshops I learn so much just from you know dealing with people and then I always feel like it, it's kind of amazing it's like a kind of magic that I get paid to sit there <laughs> and learn every day how to do better what it is that is the only thing I want to do and it kills me so thank, I, I can't thank you guys enough and um and uh, I heard that there was a conversation going around whether or not I'd swear tonight. <laughs> and I'd like y'all to notice that I didn't. <laughs> you motherfuckers. <laughs> Thank you so much.
Okay, now on to the draft. We have four readers tonight. Um, a couple of the instructors who did the drafting aren't, weren't able to make it um, because of the weather, so Andrea's going to fill in for them. So um, first up, um, introduced or drafted by Catherine Eastburn, who is not here, is Joy Carletti. And so Andrea's going to read Catherine's introduction. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's not often I get to be Catherine, so enjoy this with me. Um, so Catherine lives down in Colorado Springs, so that's, that's the reason. But when we were soliciting ideas for the draft, she wrote back within, I think, a millisecond to say this person needed to be drafted. Um, Joy Carletti has lived in Rhode Island, upstate New York, Boston, and most recently San Francisco, where she was active in the Live Lit community. She moved to Denver just 10 weeks ago and currently splits her time between house and job hunting. Joy, so anybody's hiring? (laughs) Joy was published last year in the anthology Bare Knuckled Lit, The Best of Right Club. Joy writes memoir, fiction, and short plays, drawing from personal experience. Her most common themes are chronic illness, grief, divorce, harping mothers, the difficulty of being ladylike, and the sheer delight of owning loud, goofy dogs. Joy recently participated in my intermediate advanced memoir and personal essay class where this piece was born. The subject is not giving. Yeah, so the whole idea was they were supposed to nominate people who wrote something having to do with gifts or regifting. She said, well, okay, sort of. The subject is not gifts or regifting, but as you will see, it is a gift to the reader of truth-telling and frank disclosure wrapped in humanity, humility, and humor. Please welcome Joy Carletti. Hi. I am an epileptic. If left unmedicated, I would have multiple seizures of several types every day. When people learn this, the question often comes, posed over drinks or in an overly casual tone, so what's it like to have a seizure? My pat answer used to be a simple, I don't know. The people asking tend to be more comfortable with me than I am with them. They assume a familiarity that they don't have. Being epileptic tends to make you slightly unwilling to trust. How do you trust anyone when your brain, your own self, isn't fully reliable? It's hard to hand over the secrets to your innermost self when your brain might break down at any moment. In truth, The question of what it's like to have a seizure can't be fobbed off easily. It requires trust to respond at all because the answer is long and complex. A journey, really. So, let's start small. The littlest seizures I have, the ones with the smallest impact, are myoclonic seizures. Have you ever been drifting to sleep? and then your whole body jerks itself as if you were falling off a cliff, but you managed to save yourself just in time. Have you ever had a hiccup? Congratulations, you've had a seizure. You've, both of these are types of my, myoclonus. You don't have to be epileptic to have them. Myoclonic jerks are just involuntary muscle movements that sometimes repeat. In my situation, though, it's different. Unlike with normal folks, the jerks don't happen when I'm in bed, and they can't be stopped just by holding my breath. A typical myoclonus for me looks like this. I'm on my computer and just my ring finger seizes. 
Suddenly, I'm right-clicking my mouse repeatedly. I didn't really want 17 new tabs open, but there they are. (laughs) Or while sitting for an extended period, my foot seizes and I kick again and again and again. You don't want to be behind me. You don't want to be in front of me on an international flight. I'm worse than a two-year-old. And when I have these seizures, I can't really stop them. So I try to stop my action, stop mousing and just shake out my hand, walk the aisles of the 747 and stomp out my foot. This may or may not stop the seizures, but in truth, monoclonic jerks are a minor annoyance. They aren't earth-shattering. I can watch them happening, and they're oddly fascinating. Other types of seizures I can't watch because I'm inside them. They're happening to my whole body. One step up from the myoclonus is the absence seizure. Absence is really the the best way to describe them. It's a momentary break with whatever is going on around you. When I was first diagnosed with epilepsy, it was because I was cast in a play at age 13, and my director thought I was forgetting my lines. I would break off in the middle of a sentence and then not know exactly where to continue. When I was a kid, my parents and teachers assumed my absence seizures were just me spacing out. Sometimes they even thought it was a deliberate evasive maneuver on my part, an attempt to get out of chores or schoolwork by sinking into the recesses of my mind. Daydreaming. This is a sort of logical assumption when it's one or two seizures, but less so when they come in a series. When I was originally diagnosed, I was having 30 to 50 of these a day. They were hard to miss, and sometimes they would come in clusters that, in retrospect, were downright obvious. On the last day of fifth grade, I had a series of absence seizures that was so protracted and profound that I couldn't function. I couldn't figure out how to get ready for school. What I can remember was sitting at the end of my bed, holding my pants, and simply not comprehending how they worked. There were breaks in the passage of time, and I couldn't make the connections. How did I get from the breakfast room to my bedroom? Where did I get these pants? How did the pants unzip? At the time, my dad had just gotten a full-time job after nearly two years of unemployment. That morning, he was pushing to get himself to work on time while trying to get me and my brother on buses to school. So to have me seemingly just staring into space and not cooperating, it was too much for him. Discipline in our family usually took the form of grounding or reduced privileges. That day was a rare exception to the rule. I don't have a clear recollection of my father hitting me. I don't know how many times he hit me, or where, or how. I was too deep down in the seizures. I only know he did it because several years later... Long after I got diagnosed with epilepsy, my dad lamented his actions on that day. He didn't understand what was happening or why I was so unresponsive. He chalked it up to me becoming more like my brother, a truculent teenager. For years, my dad blamed himself for me not being diagnosed sooner because he didn't take me to a doctor in that moment, but instead went to work and let me stay home, seemingly lost in a daydream. The thing is, there is no daydream happening within me during a seizure. An absent seizure is a moment in time lost. And when you get right down to it, what is life but moments in time? You don't really want to lose them, even if the moment is just putting on pants. The biggest loss of all comes when I have a tonic-clonic seizure. These are traditionally known as grand mal seizures, which translates from the French as big bad. These are the ones that people are really asking about when they want to know what it's like to have a seizure. Some epileptics get an aura before having a tonic-clonic seizure, smelling oranges or seeing lights. The aura helps them to realize that a seizure is coming. I don't really have that. My only warning is that sometimes I have a bunch of absent seizures first. 
I go from being completely coherent to being able to, to, be, to being unable to track anything. Patches of conversations just lost. To suddenly I'm on the floor and people are telling me I've had a seizure and asking me those stupid, who is the president questions. Being told I've had a seizure is always hard because it needs to be repeated a few times in order for me to understand. My brain rarely remembers that I've had a seizure. I do feel it in my body. I used to say that the effect of a big bad seizure on your body was like running a marathon in just a few minutes. Then I actually ran a marathon. (laughs) I was very wrong. A seizure is much worse. The thing is you train for a marathon. You're sort of ready for it. You're never ready for a seizure. It's 30 seconds of every muscle in your body tensing and relaxing, tensing and relaxing. It's arduous. It's physically painful. It's a lot of work. And it flashes so quickly, and then your body needs recovery time. After my marathon, I got up and went to a theme park the next day. I was sore, but I did it, walking over 14,000 steps the day after I took 63,000. After a seizure... I need a nap, and usually I sleep for hours. I need a full day of rest to recover physically and mentally. My tongue needs a week to recover because, while it's an old wives' tale that epileptics will bite their tongues off, I will chew the side of my tongue to a bloody pulp every time. I tend to think there's a fascination with finding out what having a seizure is like because watching someone have one is really difficult. It's scary. There's a reason why people used to think it was demon possession. After the first time I saw someone have a seizure, I needed reassurance that when I seized, it wasn't so frightening, that I didn't look like that, that I wasn't so vacant or dead. But the reality is, I'm not there when I'm having a seizure. My body is in control of me. Everything that makes me me, it's not there. You see, every religion from the ancient Greeks right on up to the Church of Latter-day Saints has ideas about the soul. The soul is supposed to be what distinguishes the living from the dead, humans from animals. When people ask me what it's like to have a seizure, the real difficulty is in answering is that there's part of me, call it my soul or my animus or my humanity, whatever. That's not present when I seize, and I haven't been able to identify where it is. There's no me there to play the seeker in this cosmic game of hide-and-seek. I can poke around at the edges of spiritualism and hope that something feels right, The Kabbalah has a nice separation of the soul into different pieces. There's an element of the soul for the intellect and another for instinct. So maybe a seizure is my instinctual soul taking over. My intellectual soul tells me that's bullshit. (laughs) Epilepsy is a chronic illness. A seizure is neurons misfiring and sending your body the wrong signals. So my question of where my soul is during a seizure remains. The person that I am is crushed under the weight of misfiring neurons. Even the small seizures bring up the issue of control. How can you say where you leave off and the epilepsy begins? Control is one of the main challenges of being epileptic. You live your life either controlled by meds or at risk of being controlled by seizures. Hopefully you find a good medication. Some of the side effects of seizure meds are horrific. And then you can move through your life and not think about the epilepsy part of it. You hope for the best. It's a waiting game because the next seizure, no matter how well controlled you are, is always, will always come. And so life gets lived, enjoyed, celebrated, won. But the next seizure hangs in the background as a possibility, always. I am lucky enough that my seizures are well controlled by medication. It's normal for me to go about 18 months between big bad seizures. Right now it's been over two years. But that means that in all likelihood my next seizure is around the corner. So I want, need, to do some information sharing. 
The life of any epileptic means you tell people that you have seizures and how they can deal with them. I need to have the hard discussions because people can be dumb and unkind and ignorant. I know what I can do. I had a dog that had, had epilepsy. Has been said to me multiple times. <laughs> multiple. You can run from these discussions. Lots of people do. Or you can choose to face them head on. I've always felt it's better that friends learn how to deal with a seizure before they're, they're faced with me just having one in front of them. So here's the deal. Here is what it's really like to have a seizure, including some helpful tips about what you can do. I'm going to fall on the floor. Please do move stuff out of the way. Uh, and if I land my, on my face on a rug, turn me over. Nobody likes having rug burn on their face. I speak from experience. During the seizure, I'm going to be rigid for about 20 to 30 seconds. During that time, I will chew up my tongue. So for God's sake, don't put your fingers in my mouth. I will chew them off. After that, I'll be unconscious. That's, that's going to be scary for you, so don't freak out. Don't call 911. Remember, this has happened to me before, sort of a lot. If I turn blue or if that rigid phase starts up again, then get medical attention. But honestly, I'm going to wake up just fine. That said, I will be super disoriented, so you'll have to tell me I had a seizure, probably several times to the point where you're a little sick of it and of me. And the first thing that I'm going to do when I finally accept that I've had one is apologize, because it's my body that failed. It failed me, and it failed you, and it ruined whatever day we were having together. And now all I want to do is sleep. So take a moment. Hold me. Make sure I'm all right. Get me home safely and reassure me from one soul to another that it's all going to be okay. Thank you, Joy. Next up, uh, we have a longtime instructor. Um, her name is Andrew Dupree, and she is actually here tonight, and she will be introducing um, a student from her advanced short story workshop. So please give it up for Andrew Dupree. That was amazing, Joy. Thank you. I met this person first when she was here volunteering. And because I'm always nosy, I think people get a little taken aback because if you look kind of new here, I'm like in your face and I apologize. But I did this to Lindsay and I said, hey, who are you? I found out she was new from Rochester, Minnesota. She had grown up in Chicago. Yeah, give it up for Rochester. Um, She had moved here from Minnesota. She had an MFA from the University of Miami. And I said, upon hearing that information, I have an advanced short story workshop I'd love for you to consider. And kind of cajoled her into taking it. And I was so glad I did. Um, What we learned in class was how particular and idiosyncratic her view of the world is. And I, I love that. And how tight her prose is how natural her storytelling authority. The revelations that come in her stories uh, remind us of the revelations we too would have if we had the sharpness of eye that she brings to her work. Nothing sensational, yet full of sensation, every scene yielding its own thrilling surprise. The story she's reading from is part of a story cycle featuring 
Revelation, that's the female's name, and she goes by Rev, and Lee, recently married after Rev's husband, who is also Lee's best friend, dies, I think in Vietnam, is that right, Lindsay? Okay, dies in Vietnam. She's got a small son, Grayson, from that marriage, and the story she's reading from tonight, which is called Forgive Them Everything They Can. Rev is undergoing a hysterectomy due to health issues, so Lee takes her son, Grayson, on a trip to the beach to meet up with his own father, who he's estranged from. The story is steeped in themes of fatherhood, made all the more poignant by the fact that Lee's access to having his own biological child has just been altered forever. Be prepared for one of the more unforgettable gift scenes you've ever heard. It will make you think twice about your own acts of generosity or inanity. Everyone, please welcome Lindsay Griffin. Hello. Thank you, Andrea. That was that was such a kind introduction. Thank you all for your generosity in advance for listening to my reading. All right. Okay, this is after day one at the beach. Um, Lee and his father and his stepson, Grayson. After Grayson had been put to bed, Lee called his wife from the lobby telephone. Rev sounded cool, something about the connection, the tinniness of the call. There was the exchange of pleasantries, the recounting of the day's minutiae, though he found it difficult to unwind in her voice. It seemed to him dishonest. Finally, a series of yawns, the breathy silence and her tired murmur, I'm so sorry, Lee. And what could he say, but it wasn't anyone's fault, certainly not hers. They would never have children together. It was a cold, brief fact. What do they do with your uterus after they take it out, he asked. I don't know. He heard her shift the phone and wondered if she was reading or watching television. There's got to be some kind of protocol. They're always taking parts out of people. What do they do with them? I didn't ask. He could imagine her in a room with green paper on the walls and masked doctors bending over, a cold tray of implements, the harsh white lights. He wondered where such an image had come from, probably television. He wondered how much the way he imagined was shaped by television. He heard the scrape of a chair. Where are you, he said. I'm at the kitchen table, she said, too brightly. She was already up and moving around as the doctor had recommended, her resilience always a point of pride. But Lee could only think of the table's gray barnwood surface, the split along the middle, large enough to stick a finger through. Rev was always putting a plate over it so that Grayson wouldn't drop unwanted food to the dog waiting on the floor. When Rev told Lee about the surgery, her finger had run the lip of that gash up and down, up and down, and her words had fallen into the gap. He knew terrible things were disclosed at kitchen tables. It had not surprised him at the end of their conversation to find his life altered and still a warm loaf of bread and the expectation that he would eat. It's getting late. I better let you go. Is Grayson in bed? He is. Good. Good night, Lee. Good night, Rev. So I'm reading from a couple different spots in this next section. Um, 
Lee's father brings his girlfriend to this meeting, and they spend the day at the beach together, um, and Grayson buries his grandfather in the sand and kind of shapes him as a shark. Um, and another character that's going to show up that's kind of introduced earlier in the story is named Aster Towns, and he's kind of this neglected boy that's sort of wandering around, but he befriends Grayson, um, and, and so they spend some time together, so when he shows up, you'll know who he is. Um, this is right after Aster Towns and Grayson have gone off together, um, and Lee is, Lee is left with his father. When Lenora was gone, Lee dug out his father's legs. It's probably not good for your circulation to stay in that all day. I have excellent circulation, his father replied, but they had to walk down the beach a bit to get his balance back. It grew quieter the further from the pier and the snowbird condos, now only small mansions, many of them shuttered for the season. Lee could see further on Aster Towns removing his clothes, folding each piece carefully and putting them in a pile. He was going to swim in his underwear. He lowered to a three-point start and made a dash for the water. Lenora seems a lot younger than you, Lee said. His mother had been younger as well. He'd always considered his father a barometer for age. She's had some work done, Lee's father told him. Of course, we're always old beneath our clothes. He snorted in a crude way. I don't know why you tell me these things, Lee said. Sometimes I think you don't want me to like you. Aster Towns thrashed through the surf to his ankles, calves, knees, thighs, and waist. He dove under once and a second time. The current was strong, pulling him down the beach, even as he swam a few lengths. When he tried a handstand, a wave turned him over. It was a minute before Lee could find him again, running out of the surf to his towel. I don't need you to like me, his father replied. He lowered himself to the sand and patted the place beside him. Lee sat. His father pulled out his wallet and handed Lee a photograph of a little boy with bright red hair, gazing shyly at the camera. The boy was sitting on a swing with his face resting against the chain, almost turning away, a dark braid along his face, the chain shadow. That's your brother, his father said. He was fishing for an emotion, but Lee wasn't sure which one. Lee took the picture. He's in Denver now. I told you before that his mother isn't taking care of him. I've got a lawyer looking into it, his father said. I don't think they're going to award custody to a 75-year-old man over the boy's mother, Lee said. He returned the picture. When I get him, I want to give him to you and your wife, his father said. I don't think I understand, Lee said. I'm going to give him to you, his father said. There was an edge to his voice. Lee shook his head. That's the craziest thing you've ever said. You're young, a good father. You have a son his own age. You want a family? A smug twitch lit the corner of his lip. You shouldn't have gotten that woman pregnant. Lee stood up. It was irresponsible. What you're saying right now is irresponsible. His father folded the wallet and put it back into his pocket. He struggled to stand. I think I've mentioned before that I do not need lectures from my son, his father said. But Lee was already putting pace between them, skirting between potential turtle nests staked with neon ribbon. When he reached the boys, they were lying on their towels, talking back and forth with their eyes closed. My father killed the sand dollar, Grayson was saying. He put it in fresh water. My mother killed a mouse once with a frying pan, Aster Towns responded. My mother ran over a possum with a car. I brought home rabbits once, and my father killed them with a shovel. How many rabbits? Four. And here's the last section. In the morning, Lee took Grayson to the beach for the last time and followed him through the chalky sand toward the pier. 
On the water, birds perched on pilings wrapped in fog, at the horizon, bands of white, orange, and pink. Couples were strolling, people walked their dogs, red flags at the lifeguard stations, beyond them a rigorous surf. Near the pier, Aster Towns ate melting cotton candy from a plastic bag, pink tufts stuck to his chin and cheeks, grainy pink along his upper lip. Lee saw him first and waved. That's a fine breakfast, Lee said. The boy ignored him. You weren't in your room, he said to Grayson accusingly. The ice machine leaked and we had to be moved, Lee said. I came to tell you, the boy continued, still addressing Grayson. We caught a shark. He puffed out his hollow chest. When, Lee asked. Last night, the boy said. We beached her and everything. Was she big, Grayson asked. Big as me, the boy said. What'd you do with it, Grayson asked. We cut off her tail and sliced two big jugs from her side so the other guys could take them home and eat them. He slashed the air with his hands, carving the fillets, but then stopped suddenly and looked at the ground. That's when we saw she was full of babies, he said. Oh, Lee said. There was a lot of blood, the boy said. We let it drain in the water, but then we had to drag the carcass up the beach to throw it away. He shrugged. We were, fe- we were using flashlights, so it was kind of hard to see. Grayson watched him listening. Do you think it's a sin to kill babies, the boy said. Not shark babies, Lee said. I didn't want to kill them. His chest collapsed suddenly, then his face broke and he was crying. It's all right, Lee said, reaching out to pat the boy on his back. He was dirtier than Lee had realized, and beneath the dirt, sunburn, his shoulders peeling. He smelled like sea, and his arms and legs had a thin dust of sand. Is there anyone we can get for you, Lee asked. The boy shook his head. Now that he had begun to cry, he couldn't stop. We stabbed the babies with fillet knives and smashed them on the rocks, he said. He turned his face tightly to Lee's shirt. Lee could think of nothing to say. Beneath Grayson's curious gaze, he patted the boy on his back, telling him, It's okay. I forgive you. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, next up, we have the, um, the first speaking award winner. We'll be introducing one of his students. When he's wearing his writing cape, he's known as William Hayward Henderson, but I like to call him Billy. Please give a warm welcome to Bill. Billy. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to try to say something that lives up to Karen Levin book. Um, Everyone writes these little speeches, and I, I always forget to do that, so I'm just going to try to say a few things. First off, Karen has the perfect writer's name, Levin Book. It's like she's leavening her book. She's been working on it for a while. She showed up in Colorado or in our workshops five years ago, maybe. She came back from L.A., where she'd been for a while. And she showed up with this incredibly gorgeous novel that she's been working on. She's been in the advanced novel workshop for a couple of years, and now she's a member a first-year member of the book project. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys know the book project, but um, those of us who teach in it get every, every week to read the most amazing pages from the most amazing people. And our first, our first year uh, moved on, and I feel like I've sort of lost my children. It's, it's like looking for them all the time. Um, so her, her, um, uh, this book that she's working on uh, follows 
four or three lost souls around the around the West: um, Montana, South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, Texas. Um, the book is always tender, um, even in the face of the deepest hardship and loss. Um, it's funny. It's very strange. There are moments of amazing strangeness and beauty. She's going to read a little bit from a section um, with Jack, who's one of the three main characters. Karen Levenbook. Thanks, Phil. Uh, okay. Um, this is a brief expert, uh, excerpt from my novel, uh, Safe Travel in Bear Country. Uh, partway through, I'm going to skip ahead, uh, and I'll let you know when that happens. If you draw an imaginary X in the middle of a horse's forehead from the right ear to the left eye and the left ear to the right eye, then hold a 22 caliber pistol perpendicular to the forehead and pull the trigger. It may blow some brains but not kill. You need to use a 357 or a 9 millimeter and hold the gun away from the head, say two inches. You've watched these horses cliffside as they fight over a water hole, seen them die of thirst. You know there were hundreds, now there are 50,000. And even from this distance, you can bring them into your sight. Pretend to hint the X, or just below the thorax, to be sure. There you are, with your fine eye and your proper bullet, ready. It took Jack three days to drive to Texas. He stopped along the way and slept in the camper shell, Duggar staying close, burrowing under the blankets at night, until Jack kicked him out. He laughed, telling him they were both half-breeds, a good match. Duggar, some part cattle dog and who knows what. The different colored eyes, the slight underbite. In the dark, Jack would lie in bed and listen to Zizzy's messages over and over. Duggar's ears twitched at the sound of her voice. But then he'd plop his head down. The dog missed her. Thoughts appeared on Doug's face so clearly that he seemed human. He wanted to call Zizzy. At first, his departure had felt like an adventure, but he knew he'd used BT as an excuse to leave Ziz and the baby. He knew it, and she would find out when he didn't return. And the baby, she would have to make her own decision about that. Still, the feelings, not quite regrets, were slowing him down. He was going as fast as he could. He was, he was taking his meds. She would want to know about that, too. Mostly he wanted to tell her about Doug's, the cute things the dog was doing, the way he sat in the passenger seat like a person, the new words he'd learned. He and Zizzy had counted 20. Now he'd learned apple. Jack would say, get an apple from the bag, Doug's. And the dog would reach into the paper bag between them and pick one, careful not to bite through the skin. He wanted to share these things, but he didn't. He powered the phone off. He'd betrayed her by leaving, she would move on, perhaps she already had. She was that kind of girl. Two days later, he was in Texas, driving the mesmerizing planes with the dog asleep on a blanket beside him, when suddenly the sound of hooves, and above, the familiar whir of a helicopter low in the sky. He pulled the truck over to watch a sea of horses, heard them pound in unison as trucks barreled behind with men jumping out to hogtie colts that had fallen behind, leaving them lying there. And the helicopter, 
all the while tilting low, its blades beating as it circled back and around, hurting the mass eastward, the sound of it. And just like that, he's there again in Iraq. He's there again outside the wire, clearing houses, moon dust on everything, spit sizzling hot. They bust down the door, front room clear, kitchen clear, then gunfire. A voice says, man down. The medic says, Jack, stop. It's me, Frazier. It's not as complicated as it seems. Frazier leans over BT and pulls off his helmet. He calls in the medevac. Frazier keeps telling him to take it easy. Someone outside announces, dust off, five minutes out. They all feel better. They see the red cross on its belly and the noise and wind, then a rush to get the stretcher, his own voice. I killed him. I did it. Frazier says, he'll be fine, Jack. Look, he's fine. But Jack can't get over it. He thinks BT is dead, and he did it. Now horses again. Jack closes his eyes. He shook the memory of a rock, but not the feeling. He knew he'd follow these horses and wished it weren't so. He tried to remember what started him on this mission to save things anyway. The shrink in psychiatric lockdown had suggested a childhood incident, but Jack thought that was bullshit. He knew it was part of a larger story. Where are you now, Jack? He forced himself to see the, to see the color chart, orange to red. He could feel the rush, orange to red, shrink, Doc. He anchored his hand on Duggar's head, while the dog looked at him with those pathetic eyes. He started the truck and eased onto the road again. He would make this thing fly. His foot heavy on the gas, Duggar's ears flat in the wind. The cumulus of horses was headed at a, di- at a diagonal away from the road, and Jack was already losing sight of them. His eyes shifted off the road, then on it. Road, then horses. Road, then sky. The speedometer moved past 80, then 90. The truck swerved and skidded through an old washout, then rocked back onto the lacy edge of road that looked eaten away. The earth was cracked dry and primitive. The truck teetered back onto the road as the tires gained traction, while the helicopter grew fainter as it circled away from him. Its sound a purr now, and the cloud of horses grew smaller and smaller against the horizon. He raced by an acre or more of expensive fencing, then on his left an arched gateway with the letters RC on top, no buildings in sight, just a long dirt road. He considered going straight, finding BT's place like he was supposed to do, but instead he made a hard left turn. It was where they'd be herding the horses. There was nothing else around. He drove for five minutes before coming to the ranch, a large house, a barn, then just beyond corrals and fenced arenas, horses steaming and foaming stormed through the gates flung open where they came to abrupt halts colliding, some resigned, others manic, but all seemed, as he did, to feel relief even in the chaos at having arrived at last at some destination. He screeched to a stop and hopped out, <clears throat> Duggar in the truck, waiting. The horses were separated by men who rode cutting horses with quiet eyes that moved expertly through the group. Many in the wild herd were frantic and bleeding, chunks of skin missing from faces and legs. Older coats wandered lost in a full sweat, neighing and snorting as the men gathered them into round pens. 
Then he spotted her, a white mare in the far corral, as though she were waiting for him. He sensed it. She stood taller than the others, but something was wrong. She was shoved into the side, nearly knocked over, until she became lodged in the corner, her head rearing high to avoid the mass, and Jack took in her clouded eyes. She was blind. I'm skipping ahead now. In, um, in the section that I skip, Jack meets the owner of the ranch and learns that this is the final auction site for the horses. Um, rush around. The rancher explains how the auction works and the reasons for it. Uh, he and Jack become friends of sorts. Jack learns that many of the horses will be sent to the slaughterhouse down the road, if not sold tomorrow. And Sharon offers him a place to camp, but warns him not to return. He does camp there and visits the slaughterhouse down the road in the afternoon, um, which is designed for cattle slaughter. Jack returned to the ranch after midnight. The horses stirred when he approached. Some whinnied into the hot air, eyes rolling, moving away from the fence in a solid mass, but the white one stayed. She was tall and still pranced, even with the boniness of age. Jack wondered if the gods looked down on this one. He imagined they had once wept at her grace. Oh, that they could ride her. Thunder came louder and closer. Clouds exploded, sending torrents of cold rain onto the red soil. Lightning flashed in violent spikes of white light. The horses shifted from one side of the corral to the other, too exhausted to panic. Homeless on their way to death tomorrow, there was no food or water now. But the blind one came toward him, snorting and tossing her head. There were scars on her side where wings might have been ripped away. But as he looked closer, he could see it was from spurs dug in. Here's tomorrow, he told her. The concrete will be slippery with blood. They'll get you into the chute. They'll have a hard time. You'll be wily and out of control. Some guy will hit you between the eyes with a bolt gun. A metal rod will shoot into your brain. But he might miss. They give him no time at all. They'll rope your back feet and hoist you upside down. Then someone slits your throat. He took out his gun and ran it down the horse's neck while she looked at him with those cataract eyes. Jack pointed the gun at her forehead, just above her eyes, the imaginary X. The rain poured down onto the red clay soil, rivulets between the horse's hooves and Jack's boots. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Uh, last up is um, a draftee um, picked by our, one of our short story instructors, Paula Younger. Who's, are you here still, Paula? There you are. Awesome. Okay. Um, all right. We'll just continue to give it up for Paula Younger. Um, I teach the intro and intermediate short story at Lighthouse. I've been teaching here for a long time. But Nick, which I just realized after hearing all these lovely readers, is our only guy tonight. So, woohoo, we got a little bit of balance. <laughs> and um, I do need to look at his sheet. I feel like I'm always sleep deprived. I got young children and I don't remember anything. But this is a bio that Nick sent me, and then I'm just going to talk about him and his short story a little bit. 
But created in a test tube, Nick Brasco spent the first 12 years of his life in Chicago. However, after unearthing an intense love for taxidermy, he moved to Indiana because of the greater access to wildlife. He was then shoved in a crate and shipped to Denver, which we're so lucky to have him, where he now resides. This is my favorite part. Um, his favorite hobbies include beating young children in competitive sports <laughs> and consuming tubs of peanut brittle. So as you can already see, Nick's fun to have in class. He's got a great sense of humor. He knows how to pick really good details, how to be absurd and funny. He's very passionate and energetic. And for some of us who are a little tired from young children and been teaching or writing well, it's nice to be around that. <laughs> and he likes to ask pesky questions about craft, like, what are the stakes anyway? <laughs> and <laughs> I know, we're literary. What do we talk about the stakes? <laughs> and he comes from a really big Italian family. And so he trots out some really great fun details for us. And I might get this wrong, so Nick can correct me if I do. We talked about how his family owns a bakery in New York that was filmed in Moonstruck. Yeah, which is cool. But then, <laughs> but the even better detail is that his grandmother hates it, and she'd purposely like walk out of her way to not go to that bakery. <laughs> so now that we all love Nick as we should, in his short story, Deconstructing Duckworth, he takes on, it's a little bit George Saunders-ish, he goes a little bit for the absurd story, and his main character, Ned, does this really great thing called man racing. And so it really is men racing with jockeys on their back, which... I've never known I would write comments like, I really want to see man racing. <laughs> I want more about this. <laughs> but, um, you know, Ned is kind of that anti-hero. He's a man down on his luck. Things aren't quite working out. Man racing isn't going so well. His body's breaking down on him. <laughs> and he's kind of not able to give it up. <laughs> and then he goes into this really exciting kind of business opportunity where he's selling organs. And I think it's livers and hearts. Is that right? <laughs> and he's doing really well, and he's suddenly getting respect from people. But he just cannot let go of man racing. <laughs> but when I, when I heard about the topic for gifts, I thought of Nick, because he has one of my favorite gift scenes. Where Ned, our main character who we really love, we love these down-on-the-luck characters who just can't quite let go of something. And he's trying to win over his son, going to his birthday party with this really great gift that he can finally afford to buy. And he doesn't fit in with all these Bermuda short other fathers who are very suburban and more successful than him. And it's one of the things that makes me love Ned and makes me love Nick. And so I hope you'll enjoy this excerpt of the story as much as I do. And please welcome Nick Frasco. Ned holds Petey's birthday present close with both hands. The sidewalk is pearly and the air is vibrant. He knows he may have gone overboard with the gift, but he feels like he owes the kid. In his eyes, it's the least he can do. He purchased it after he paid Bonnie back. He handed her a sweaty wad of cash and said, you'll get the rest next month. Then he bought himself a suit, leather shoes, a fine cigar, and some aged scotch whiskey. He'll tackle the rest of his bills next month. He approaches Bonnie's house and walks along the side toward the backyard where the party's being held. Like last year, it's the usual gaggle of suspects. Familiar but unrecognizable faces. Ned sees the kids running in circles and the adults talking in corners. Michelle Carmichael is stroking some guy's chest. Somebody speaks of a pinata. Ned finds the table of birthday presents and places his front and center. Scanning the table, he decides his present is easily the biggest. He walks aimlessly until he finds Petey, who's playing soccer with his friends. Ned steps in the middle of the game and squats down, looking at Petey's face. Well, hey, Petey. Uh, I'm playing soccer, says Petey. That's great, says Ned. I'm not a huge fan of myself, but I've heard some great things. 
Ned's still squatting, but his knees don't hurt nearly as much. Another advantage of the new job. In the distance, somebody calls Petey's name. So you want to open some presents? Uh, I think we're doing that in a little while. Come on, just open mine. I won't tell mom if you. Then Ned feels a hand on his shoulder. Looking up, he sees Ned the accountant standing over him. Well, hey, says Ned the accountant. Nice suit, is it new? Thanks, says Ned, standing up in his brand new suit. No, I've had this thing for a while, but I thought, not every day is your son's birthday. So what the hell? Ned the accountant cringes at the word hell. I was telling Petey here, says Ned, that he should open up some presents, cuz, well, we're not doing that for a while, says Ned the accountant. He grabs Ned by the bicep and drags him across the yard. Let's let these kids play their game. I'll introduce you to some of the guys. The guys are all men sporting comb-overs and Bermuda shorts. They're all drinking Bud Light. Hey, guys, says Ned the accountant. This is Ned, Petey's father. The guys say hi. Ned, this is Stephen, Chet, and Bill. Ned the accountant points to each one, and then Ned shakes their hands. As he takes the hand of the last guy, Ned realizes it's Bill Carmichael. Yeah, says Bill Carmichael. I saw this guy the other day. He was selling kidneys. Kidneys? asks Stephen. Well, for now, says Bill Carmichael, at least until he finalizes his new racing contract. Speaking of contracts, says Chet, did you hear anything from that job in Skokie, Bill? What's with the suit? asks Stephen. Not yet, says a sweating Bill Carmichael. I'm still waiting to hear back, but this could definitely be the one. He picks at a blackhead on his nose. I just thought I'd dress for the occasion, says Ned. Interesting, says Stephen. I didn't even know you were still racing, says Ned the accountant. Bonnie said you're doing so well with the sales. I don't know. I just assumed you were selling kidneys full time. Kidneys, asks Stephen. Chet takes a sip of Bud Light. Ned, tapping his finger on his leg, hears the thud of the soccer ball. His tongue is dry. A woman feeds crackers to her child and calls him my boo-boo. The kid has a pubescent mustache. Hey, guys, calls Bonnie from across the yard. Can we set this food out? They stare. She holds a tray of crustless sandwiches, and Ned has been hoping for pizza. Ned watches them, the guys, run to Bonnie. They set out paper plates and solo cups and plastic utensils. Ned arrives at the food table last. Sorry, Ned, says Bonnie, but we only have PBJ. But you like PBJs. Why don't you just get pizza, asks Ned. It's a lot easier and more appropriate, because, you know, it's a kid's birthday party. Because, Ned, that's unhealthy. She thumps the sandwich onto his plate. The adults sit at a big glass table, which is completely full. Bill Carmichael is forced to stand, plate in hand, chin over plate. Ned walks over to the picnic table on the other side of the yard and sits between my boo-boo, afraid of his sandwich, and a little girl in pigtails. She's picking her nose and wiping the nasal mucus on her sandwich. Streaks of green against the whitest bread. (laughs) The adults finish their food and talk. Ned the accountant tells a story about Disney World, which leads to a synopsis of a Keanu Reeves movie. It takes forever. Ned watches from the picnic table. All right, everybody, announces Bonnie. Time for presents. Ned jumps up and walks toward the table of gifts. He snatches up his present and holds it with both hands, slightly bouncing on his heels. Petey sits in the birthday chair and puts on the birthday hat. He gets a toy truck, some video games, a punch-me Mr. Walcott, and some baseball cards. Ned thinks of his own man racing card. At one point, a long time ago, it was a gift for a kid like Petey. Ned the accountant looks at the table of gifts and upon seeing it empty says, All right, Petey, tell everybody thank you. I think that's it for today. No! screams Ned, 
holding his gift aloft. He hasn't opened this one. Well, hey, says then the account, look at that. Tell your dad thanks. Petey says thanks. He unwraps the gift carefully, cellophane falling from the box. Then Petey sees it, the smartphone infinity, the updated version with the attached waffle cooker. It's this season's hot new item. Petey raises his eyebrows and opens his mouth. I can't believe it, he yells. Thank you, Dad. Thank you so much. He jumps out of his chair and latches onto Ned. Ned returns the hug and holds onto the moment, and squatting down, he says, Hey, you deserve it. Petey runs towards the other kids and shows off the phone. He passes the thing, account, he passes the thing around, and each kid examines it, opening and closing the attached waffle cooker. They're impressed. At one point, Petey turns to Ned and waves. Then Ned feels a hard poke on his shoulder and turns around. What the hell was that? asks Bonnie. What is a kid his age going to do with a phone that expensive? Ned rolls his eyes and says, Relax, Bonnie. Jesus. The kid's happy, so let it go. Please. You're killing me. She turns around and walks off. Ned smiles. Then everybody eats some cake, and afterwards, Ned the account sets up the piñata. Petey stumbles aimlessly and whacks the air, searching for the piñata. All right, Petey, says Ned the accountant. You gotta aim a little higher now. Ned, looking over at Ned the accountant, folds his arms over his chest and while getting in a power stance says, All right, Petey, you gotta aim a little higher now. And walk forward a bit. Petey's stick almost hits the piñata. Ned claps and watches the child stumble. You're getting close, says Ned. Don't give up. Then Petey thrashes the piñata and rips it, candy flaring out like a spark machine. The kids... Running towards it, cup their hands and catch the glossy packets before they hit the ground. Ned smiles and claps. Way to go, Petey, he calls out, still in a power stance. The parents start to talk, and the kids fight for candy in that jovial way. Then everybody hears the screams. Oh no! My boo-boo! screams the mom. My poor little boo-boo! She's rocking her kid back and forth and cradling his head. My boo-boo is howling, his hand a lumpy brisket. Who left on that waffle cooker, shrieks the mother. She throws up her arms and appeals to God. Why? Everything becomes chaotic. Ned, feeling somewhat responsible, panics and runs into the house to grab a cold rag. Rummaging through Bonnie's drawers, he looks for anything of use. Well, hey, Ned, says Ned the accountant, storming in out of nowhere. Can I uh, help you find something? I'm looking for a rag, says Ned. I, I need to help that boy. I see, says Ned the accountant. He takes Ned by the shoulder. Why don't you just take a seat at the picnic table? It's not that your help isn't appreciated, because it is. It's just that, you know, Stephen's a veterinarian, and it's probably better if we let a professional handle this until the ambulance comes. But I, come on, Ned, says Ned the accountant. He escorts him back to the picnic table. They pass the circle of adults surrounding my boo-boo. All right, he says Ned the accountant. Can I get you something? Some water? Another piece of cake? I really feel bad for what happened, says Ned. I feel like I should be helping. What? No. It was just an accident. Here, says Ned the accountant, picking up Ned's plate. Let me get you another piece of cake. And I promise, I will let you know if we need anything. Anything at all. The mother, still rocking her child, is screaming, Why would anybody get that gift for a child? From the middle of the circle, down on one knee, Stephen says, I heard those things are about to be recalled. Somebody up in Vermont got their hand amputated because of that waffle cooker. Michelle Carmichael is rubbing his back. Ned the account returns with a piece of cake and a glass of water. He massages Ned's shoulders. It is not soothing. 
You just relax now, says Ned the accountant. Then he runs inside to console Petey, who's locked himself in the laundry room. I'm so glad my Galaxy X5 doesn't have a waffle cooker. Thank you very much. Let's give one more round of applause to our instructors and draftees. Wonderful job tonight. Thank you so much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.